0: Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Oh Boy, an original by Youngstown rocker Glass Alice. Glass Alice is our featured Ohio music artist this week. So stick around to the end of the podcast so we can tell you a little bit more about them and let you hear the entire song. But right now, stoke that campfire. We've got a new Ohio mystery to share. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, whose journalism career included some 30 years at the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everyone. Steve, tonight's mystery is a little bit different. It's a story about torment. I
0: don't like torment.
1: No. And a seemingly normal small-town couple that spent almost a decade fearing every knock on the door and every ring of the phone call. The harassment of Bill and Dorothy Wacker has been capturing the attention of mystery shows and true crime fans since the 1990s when the TV program Unsolved Mysteries brought it to light. Bill Wacker and Dorothy Young were both born in Massillon, Ohio in the 1920s. They grew up there, fell in love there, married there. During World War II, Bill enlisted in the army and served in Europe in England, France, Luxembourg, and Germany with the infantry. And except for that brief absence, the Whackers spent their entire adult lives in the same house where they raised two daughters. But far from being a sanctuary, that home in Massillon would become the scene for so much disquiet in an otherwise unassuming life. It all started in 1984 and 1985, a period during which the couple were the victims of three different home invasions. The first two times their home was ransacked, they took it on the chin, put everything back in order without even notifying authorities. The third time, January of 1985, they'd had enough. They called Massillon Police, and officers came out and took their statement, but there just wasn't much to go on. The next six months went by without incident, but in July of 85, things turned violent. Bill was at work and Dorothy was home alone, recovering from heart surgery, when there was a knock on the door. She found on her front porch a man in his mid 20s, white, blonde hair and blue eyes, maybe five foot nine. I've seen a composite sketch of this guy, a really average looking fellow. Well, the young man told Dorothy his car had broken down and he kind of nodded down the road. His car wasn't visible to her, but she let him in the house so he could use a phone to call for help. Now, I know right now you want to scream, don't let him in. But it's too late because, like I said, this happened in 85 and she already did. He made a phone call, or at least pretended to, after which she bid him goodbye. I don't know the logistics of what happened next. Dorothy said she thought the stranger had left the house, but he didn't. And moments later, after she thought she was alone, she lost consciousness. He was still in the house after all, and apparently had snuck up behind her and knocked her out. When Dorothy woke up, she was lying on the kitchen floor bound and gagged she managed to get to an open kitchen window and shout for help until a neighbor came to the rescue and called police dorothy wasn't seriously injured in that attack and she was able to give police a description of her attacker and when bill got to the house he took inventory and noticed a few things missing a 22 caliber revolver an antique watch a movie camera and a radio scanner in addition to that, the attacker had left a message behind. Scrawled on the dining room wall in crayon, it said, Cheaper, but we'll do. Was the thief mocking the quality of items he'd just stolen? Police visited local pawn shops and talked to some street dealers, hoping to get a lead, but nothing came of it. Four months after the assault and theft, a really strange thing happened. Bill stepped onto his front porch to find a plastic shopping bag and in that bag, his gun. It's a scene that would be repeated a few more times over the next couple of months as each stolen item was returned one at a time in the same fashion. Each time, police collected the item, dusted for fingerprints and found nothing as if they had all been wiped clean. Then the harassment took a different turn. The guy started calling the house. Sometimes he spoke, threatening violence. Sometimes he just breathed heavily. Bill and Dorothy tried changing their phone number several times, but each time the caller found them. Their tormentor was brazen and clearly unafraid of getting close to them physically. At random hours of the night, the Whackers would hear banging on some part of the exterior of their house, but they always failed to catch anyone in the act, and the noise was just that, noise, the kind of act that doesn't leave behind clues. The Whackers put up a security light, hoping it would be enough to intimidate anyone from approaching the house at night. It didn't work. One morning, Bill found a note on the front porch saying, your lights are a laugh. More notes followed, each appearing on the front porch and again, either threatening the Whackers or simply mocking them for something. The notes. Now, there was a clue, sort of. It was handwriting, but police said the uneven, jagged style of writing made it appear the writer was using the wrong hand to conceal their identity. And again, police checked the notes for fingerprints. There were none. Eight years after Dorothy was attacked and left on the kitchen floor, she was attacked again. I couldn't find many details of what happened, other than it happened on Wednesday, October 27, 1993. And she had to be taken to the hospital, where she was treated for a concussion and lacerations to her skull. By now, police were getting a little suspicious of Bill Wacker. Could he be behind everything, gaslighting his own wife? But Bill and Dorothy insisted they had nothing to do with it. The month after the second attack on Dorothy, the family planned to stake out of their own home. Using two-way radios, Bill took a position inside a trailer on the driveway Two of the Whackers' sons-in-law watched the house from a van across the street, and Dorothy and her daughter Kathy stayed inside the house. It only lasted about four hours. They apparently tired of the plan and called the whole thing off. But that very night, the Whackers were visited again. They heard thumping sounds on the porch, and when they went to investigate, they found yet another note. This one said, "'Get the message.'" And that, my friends, was the end of it, as far as we know. Bill and Dorothy reported no further messages, phone calls, house visits, or physical attacks. Massillon police have long believed that whoever was leading the assault on the Whackers knew them. Perhaps a friend, a neighbor, even a family member. Someone who knew the habits of the couple to the extent that they could approach the house and disappear before discovery. Someone who had access to each new phone number. It's not known if the first man, that guy who gained entry to the house pretending his car broke down, is the same guy who ransacked their house three times before, or if he's the same guy that kept up a campaign of phone calls over the next several years. Dorothy had seen that man. Certainly, if the Whackers knew him, she would have been able to give police a name. Anyway, Bill and Dorothy both died without knowing the source of their torment, Bill passed in 1999 at the age of 79. Dorothy died in 2010
0: at the age of 83. That yeah, many home invasions. I mean, you know, that usually happens in a drug house or, you know, some some place that, you know, has something hidden away that other people know. I just, I think it's somebody they knew or something. There may be some gaslighting going on there. I- it seemed like
1: whoever was doing this had to know more about them than a complete stranger. Yeah, absolutely. Because
0: three in that short amount of time, there's, something's up. All right. Well, let's see what our armchair detectives have to say.
2: History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time?
1: Well, for tonight's armchair detective, we have three for the price of one. We are welcoming Liz, Misty, and Katie, who live in Northeast Ohio, and they are the co-hosts of a brand new podcast called Murder Road Podcast, which is a um, an exploration of the unsolved homicides in the Berlin Reservoir area of Portage County. Welcome, ladies.
3: Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having us. All right. Well, listen, why don't you ladies tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves?
3: Well, we're really glad to be here because we're huge fans, first of all. (laughs) Uh, Second of all, um, I grew up in a real weird place. I think we've all agreed that Ohio is a real weird place. And where I grew up was extra, extra weird. I grew up in a place where, in the span of one year, we had five unsolved homicides that are still unsolved to this day, a quarter of a century later. One of them was actually the murder of the child of a sheriff's lieutenant, which is really absurd that it's still unsolved. You guys actually did an episode about it, and that's how I found you guys, because somebody sent it to me and said, Oh, hey, this is about your road. And I was like, Oh, crap. (laughs) So... That's how I actually found you guys.
1: I can't imagine growing up on that road with the reputation it has uh, gained for all those unsolved and seemingly unconnected murders. So it's like this draw for killers from everywhere.
3: It's incredibly convenient. Wow. For that purpose.
1: And you other, uh, Misty and Kate, you both grew up in that area also?
4: I did not. I grew up in Lorain County. Okay. So mm-hmm. I ended up...
1: T- You've been pulled in yes. to the vortex. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
4: <laughs> that's, you know what? that's You mentioned in the episode you called it the
3: vortex of evil, mm-hmm. and, and Katie said she didn't feel like that was far off. I don't either. I feel like it's pretty accurate. There's all kinds of urban myths about that road, not just as if the actual facts weren't terrifying enough. So it's so weird to have this uh, contrast in my head of this really great childhood where we spent all this time outside, like... Fishing and hiking and building forts, and then it's like, oh! But then there's all the bodies.
1: I mean, it's a beautiful place. It's it a it's is. a state it really attraction. Is. I mean, people come from miles around to go camping and fishing and boating there. Really so. good
3: catfishing,
1: after Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. And then there was the story where the one guy who was there claiming to have found one of the bodies years yes. later. Ended up killing a couple of right. people. So it's like to, it's like a Stephen King horror film. If you and go to that you, site, it might main. turn you we're into the, a we're killer. the Dairy main of a there, there you go. <laughs> I love that. That's it. That's oh. it. Dairy Maine. You know what?
3: It's weird, too, because it's like, you know, you just grow up and you're just like living your life and then some stuff happens and you're like, okay, well, that's over. Where do I go now? Where
1: do we go like, now? What,
3: what do I do with myself?
1: Well, you can, our listeners, you can look up Murder Road Podcast on any podcast app and uh, check it out. They have their first episode up. They plan on doing about one a month as their busy lives permit, but it's going to be in uh, great detail. And it'll be great for us to hear it from the perspective of people who actually grew up there and have a personal connection. This case, you guys have no personal
2: connection to this case. No,
3: and actually that's why we picked it, I think. Yes.
2: Yeah, we did. We picked it because, for for one, we don't have that personal connection. Also, it's not really murderous. We spent so many times, re- so so much time researching all these grisly murders and horrible things that happened. It was kind of a nice break to just research something bizarre.
1: Bizarre that doesn't end in death.
2: Right, right. I mean, it, assault is no joke, but right. it was nice to have living people at the end of it.
1: Well, what are, what are your thoughts on this case? I mean, there seems to be a lot, uh, at least among authorities, a lot of belief that whoever was doing this knew this couple really well. Do you
4: get that vibe? I, I really do. I really think that whoever, whoever was doing this is very close to the family. The, one of the things that, that gets me is because the phone, the phone calls and they change their phone number and then the calls keep coming. Well, when we were first,
3: um, when you first sent us the cases to look through, we did some research into the location, you know, because we're super sleuths. I have a now-grown teenager, and so we spent a lot of time learning how Snapchat and geolocation works. But so we looked up, actually, the address and the property history, and because my first thought was, why didn't any of the neighbors see anything, you know? And um, so we actually took a look at the Google Maps images of it, and it's, there is a fair bit of distance in between houses. Okay. So that, at least that answered that question, because that was That explain, question. I would explain.
1: You're right, because if this person is constantly leaving notes on their front porch, right. dropping off stolen items on their front porch, banging on the outside of the house all over, how is somebody not catching this?
3: Yeah, we actually, but, yeah. We actually watched the Unsolved Mysteries about this, and it was, first of all, a flashback. Because Unsolved Mysteries didn't change for something like 20 years. It was great. I loved it. (laughs) So there was this scene where it was like the recreation part of it, and the, the guy, Bill goes out on his front porch, and he's, like, swinging around this revolver and, like, into the night, and it's like, okay, well, my job here is done, and he turns around and goes back in the house, I'm like, so, somebody's, like, going around banging on your house, right, there's, and, and I look there didn't look like there was any bushes up against the house, it's like, where's these, where are these people hiding from you? There's, it doesn't make any sense, none of this makes any sense.
0: Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
1: If you were somebody who knew the couple well enough that you knew how they would react to some situations that would probably explain how you could get away with some things. But again, to your point It would have to be somebody who would know them to know them that well. Like, we know Bill's going to come out in his bare feet and point his gun, but we know he's not going to stroll around the house, you know. You might know those little, you know, intimate things about somebody, but you would have to know them.
2: It's also a residential street, so I can't imagine there being a ton of streetlights. And at night, it's probably pretty dark. Even if the person didn't know them, they could probably just hide hide in the night. Like... You duck duck down to the ground behind a window because you figure somebody, even if you don't know the Whackers personally, you figure somebody, anybody, is going to come out the front door and look or peer out the living room window. If you just lay low and hide, you're probably not going to be seen initially. Right. And if the neighbors were far away, the neighbors probably aren't going to see you either.
1: Now, if you think it was a family member or somebody that the Whackers knew, you're going to have to explain the guy who came to the door. So yeah. what? What? What's your take on that guy?
4: I don't. I have this weird. So I actually don't think they're connected. I think he left. I think the person was either already in the house or came in after him.
1: So you think they were two different men on that same day at that same time mm-hmm. period? I do. The guy who came knocking, asking for help, really wanted it. Right. Made the phone call, left. But somebody else in the house or came to the house to take advantage of the situation. Oh, interesting. What a coincidence would that be?
4: It's a huge coincidence.
1: (laughs) There's one thing none of of this explains, though, and that is the motive. Right. Why?
3: I'm not saying it was
1: aliens, but...
4: (laughs) (laughs) But... There seems to be some sort of hatred. It would have to be hatred going on against this couple and I think it's got to be close because you would have to see their reaction what's the point of doing it if you can't personally because that would be what they're wanting right you can't really find out how they got along with their children you couldn't find you know it's not you can do research but you can't find out if you know they were nice to their children if any of their daughters were angry with them if the son-in-laws didn't like them
2: yeah, it's hard to uncover a personal vendetta right. like that without actually talking to the family.
3: Well and then if it was teenagers, like during the, the amount of time that it, it took place over, a teenager would have gotten bored and wandered off right. long
4: before then. Yeah, eight years between first attack and then second attack. Right? I think I said eight years. Eight yeah.
1: years, yeah. right, right.
4: And so and then I can't figure out is she is 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 Dorothy the target? or truly? Or was it just
1: well, that's a good point. She was the only one that was physically right. attacked. Um, but was know... that
4: because she was the only
2: one home? Right. right. If the daughter was home, would the daughter have been physically attacked right. instead of Dorothy?
1: I couldn't get a lot of details about that second attack. I don't yeah. know what happened no. there. I couldn't find anything I saying she was at home, there was a knock on the door, nothing. Just that she was attacked, taken to the hospital. I wonder if... I don't know if... She also worked. I couldn't find anything that said she was employed. But again, you know, I was wondering if maybe there might have been a coworker, somebody at the church.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, it's, I, it's I God, have no like idea. You said it's but it's
3: got to be somebody that knows them.
1: But since obviously the only things that were stolen were returned, right? So the motive really wasn't financial. I think. Yeah. I mean, hatred, revenge.
2: Yeah. I do have a bananas theory.
1: A bananas theory. It's, okay. a banana. it's bananas. Oh, oh, it's bananas. That
2: it was involving bananas. Okay. No, it does not involve give, bananas. Even though, give
1: us the bananas, uh, Katie. Give us the bananas theory.
2: All right. Maslin State Hospitals was less than five miles from where the Whackers lived, and at the time, it was an active mental health care facility. And what we think of as mental health care facility is not quite what mental health care facilities were in the '80s if they were termed state hospitals or institutions, they were usually a little bit more, um, what's Trying kind of, what's a, what's a good word for that? Regimented? Regimented, a little bit more, uh, monitored. obtuse, a little bit more, oh, okay. um, I was kind of heavy handed with, with the quote unquote treatments. Yeah. A lot of the, the treatments that they use, science has since proved is not a thing. Or helpful at all? Oh yeah. So my banana's theory is, if since the state hospital was so close, was there a patient who just decided one day that they were gonna do this? This was his hobby. Yeah, and, and it, for something like that, there would need to, there would be no motive. There would be no motive if it was seriously somebody with a with a serious mental condition who wasn't being treated properly and had access to just wander off and then come back. Right. I was always curious if anybody had ever checked to see if the gun that was returned had ever been used in a crime. I know they checked it for fingerprints and said they couldn't find any, but did they check to see if that serial number or if that type of casing had ever been used in a crime in the four months it was missing?
1: That's a good question. You know, this story was not covered by the media from what I could tell. It only came to light because Unsolved Mysteries picked it up. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the little kinds of details like that that might come out in a traditional crime story, we didn't have access to.
2: And so. if the gun was used in a crime, it could maybe shed a light on some kind of motive because if it was used in a crime, they could be trying to frame Bill.
1: Misty, how about you? You look like you were getting ready to say something there. Well,
4: I try to wrap my head around and think if possibly they, did, they were doing this for attention. It, I'm trying really hard, and the only thing I can come close to comparing to his like Munchausen syndrome because it's not the same in any way but just doing something so you can get attention but the first time she's attacked she had open heart surgery so isn't that attention enough? I mean I don't because I know that the police at one point think they think Bill is the person who's doing this. Right. But I'm trying to just figure out I mean I know people do things like that I know it's weird I know there's very strange things that happen but and it bothers
1: me the idea that if it were Bill, that he would attack his wife while she's recovering from heart surgery. That's sort of like saying, I'm willing to take that much of a risk and attack you when you're weakest. And I don't, I don't know.
4: I just, I can't imagine that that's a lot of work to go through. You know what I mean? It's a lot to do for whatever reason. I don't know, you know, just for some attention.
3: I think that brings up a good point too. And that if somebody in the family was doing it, I really doubt Dorothy knew. Right. I would, whoever did it, I really don't think she knew who was doing it, and I, it was probably terrifying for her.
1: I thought it was kind of interesting, also, all the different ways this torment took shape. I mean, you had not just the physical assaults, but you had the phone calls, you had the banging on the door, you had the messages left on the the you know step, you had the thefts and the return. There were so many different elements. It's like somebody just couldn't get creative enough. You know, with how they wanted to torment this couple.
2: And it seemed like a bizarre set of items to take, too. The gun, I understand. But a radio scanner and a watch?
3: Yeah, it seems almost very specific, doesn't it?
2: Right. Like, they had a...
3: Those are all things that I feel like would appeal to Bill more than Dorothy. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like it's meant to be a direct insult to Bill.
2: That's a good <clears throat> point. I hadn't thought about it like that before.
3: Well, I just now thought of it. Mm-hmm. Like, if these are specific to Bill, and they seem like they're specifically meant to target him, it makes me feel less inclined to think that they were doing it themselves. Right. You know? Right. Because, look, back in the day, scanners used to be how people entertained themselves. My dad still does, (laughs) in fact. And he sits in his garage mahal, like, listening to what's going on on the scanner, and he'll send me text messages like, There's a fire." And, you know, so I could imagine back in the 80s and early 90s that that was probably his primary source of entertainment.
1: Well, ladies, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back and take another case on for us.
4: Yes, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We definitely will.
2: Yes, thank you. We we, we enjoyed it. (laughs)
0: That's it for tonight, campers. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and all of our episodes, head on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please think about financially supporting us. You'll find links to our Patreon and PayPal pages on our website. And we are truly thankful for any spare change you can send our way to cover the podcast fees, equipment, and research costs. Now let's tell you about our featured Ohio Musical
1: Artist of the Week, The band Glass Alice started in Youngstown, Ohio in 2002 under the name Face Punch. The founding members, Eric Albens and Mike Hermensky, are also lifelong high school friends and they have added to their lineup Anthony Village on bass and Howard Burns on drums. You can follow Glass Alice on Spotify, iTunes, Pandora,
0: Amazon Music and all major streaming services at the start of the podcast you heard a clip of their song oh boy we've got the rest of that song right now have a listen and we'll meet you back here at the campfire for another ohio mystery next week